Welcome to the Beyond the Test podcast, where we connect you with professionals who are innovating their industry and share their stories of passion, self-awareness, and pursuing their dreams to learn what it takes to succeed in work and life beyond the test. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Beyond the Test podcast. If you're new to the show, we're your hosts, Michael Cohen, the tech rabbi, and Ara Monsano, 11th grade student at Eula Boys High School. As director of innovation at Eula Boys High School, this podcast was created as a response to a void that Ariel noticed. I noticed that you can find podcasts if you work in industries like marketing, real estate, or finance. But what about if you don't know what you want to do? This is the podcast for you. Whether you're a high school student or someone still searching for that dream profession, we hope the conversations here with our amazing guests will inspire you to think beyond the test. Our guest describes himself as a formerly disgruntled student. He made it almost all the way through school at a 2.9 GPA. His final three semesters in advertising changed everything. Advertising classes were project-based. His grades shot to nearly 4.0. After about seven years in non-educational jobs, his wife persuaded him to try his hand in education. About 20 years later, he has served a decade at the K-8 level, opened a Google-based high school, served in two county offices, including as an assistant superintendent and IT director. He now serves as the executive director for Q. We welcome John Carippo to the show. Hey, John. How's it going? Good, Ariel. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. So we're going to start off with this first question. We ask every single guest this first question, just so we give the viewers a little background of the guest's journey. So just tell us a little bit about your professional journey, because lots of teenagers think you go to college, get one job, and that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah, I may be be as far from that as is possible. I will tell you uh, that I was uh, pretty much a 2.9 GPA all the way through school. I graduated high school without knowing what an AP class was, <laughs> that there were any. Um, I actually gave myself a gap year and went and worked at Mammoth uh, and worked in the ski shops for a year before I went back to college. Um, the, probably the one thing that got me into college was sports. I really like to play football. And so I... Uh, That was my main goal for going to college was to play a little bit more football. And I ended up sight unseen at Fresno City College, like literally walked up and did late sign up. And this is in the days before they had computerized the process. And I remember very clearly standing in a hallway. I want you to imagine, Ariel, hundreds of pieces of paper that are taped on a wall. And that's how you pick your classes. So you go to this and this. And and my friend looks over at me and he goes, dude, these classes were only Monday, Wednesday. There's not even Tuesday, Thursday. And I look over at him and I go, dude, these classes are only Tuesday, Thursday. That's how dumb we were about college while we were enrolling. We didn't realize that college is an every other day thing. We didn't even get that. Um, I ended up switching over to Fresno State. I maintained my 2.9 GPA for most of my time at Fresno State, too. Uh, One thing that really changed for me at Fresno State was I got into advertising as a major. And there's a lot of hands-on work, which I think um, the Rabbi Cohen is probably – Uh, cracking a big smile right now. We were making advertisements. We were writing commercials. We were writing TV scripts and and developing products. And it it changed the way I saw teaching and learning, which was not 
just memorizing stuff. So back to the career piece. So I graduate with my advertising degree, and I think this is going to be great. And it turns out that there's not that much advertising work in Fresno, California, uh, which is where I chose to live. So changed a couple of courses, did some contracting work for a while, uh, got into Apple computers and uh, and worked at an Apple computer store for a while. This is pre-Apple store. This was just a third-party Apple store. And then one day, my wife, who was a teacher, came home and she needed help um, teaching a history class. She didn't know anything about history, which I think says a lot about school, right? Uh, she's a teacher and she really doesn't know too much about history. <laughs> so, okay. So I started teaching her and helping her with some lesson plans. And I said, this is really cool. To make a long story short, I quit my job. I went into teaching as an emergency credential teacher, fell in love with it as a as a career, never saw that coming through all of my years of growing up, never saw me as a teacher. Um, just kept just trying to do my best as a teacher and, and looking at the best practices and doing my research. And I then became, um, I got more like involved and important at schools where like I became like I was on the school site council committee and uh, people noticed I could fix computers. So at one point I became like the IT dude for the school. And that's led me, you know, to make a long story short, I've gotten to where uh, I opened a one-to-one -one high school from scratch that's now about a 600-kid high school where every kid has a MacBook and they have Google Docs and they try to not do so many worksheets. Um, I've been a county director of IT. I've been a county director of curriculum, uh, which means like for the whole county. Um, I've been an assistant superintendent, and now I work for an educational nonprofit, and I get to hang out with really cool teachers um, like the Rabbi Cohen. And uh, actually, with a friend teacher of mine, we wrote a book, and we've sold about 7,000 copies. So that's kind of a I think that fits right in with where you're going, right? It's like a really non-standard kind of uh, approach to how I ended up where I am. That's an awesome journey. You know, I've known you since 2015 when I entered into the Apple Distinguished Educator community. Yeah. And you were one of the first people that I met. Um, really cool journey. And the the second question that we sort of build on in this conversation is a lot of experiences, a lot of variety in the journey. And the question is, how are you using creative thinking and, and solving problems in a way that you see people aren't in the work that you're doing today? Yeah. So in the big, in the big question, you know, I really just see myself as a person who's interested in problems. So like from a 30,000 foot problem. So I don't uh, sit there and say, how do teachers fix this? Or how do, you know, other people fix this? I just say, here's a problem. And how can we, um, how can we work on that problem? And uh, so I've done a lot of reading uh, outside of education. And then I, when I was uh, at Fresno State, I got to be a graduate assistant coach for two years. And, you know, when you say football coach, a lot of people think of, you know, like gray Russell sweatsuit and whistles and stuff. But uh, nowadays in college football and shoot, that was like 30 years ago, it's a very much a modern learning um, experience because you're really, really, really focused on maximum performance 
from the players and you don't get there by just yelling at them and telling them what to do every day you're actually constantly solving problems and adapting and iterating and bringing in other things and i like my coach who was at that time in 1985 he was 60 years old and he was teaching us about sun tzu and he was teaching us about media literacy and you know how to talk to reporters and really brought in a lot of outside things so for me um I think one of the things that educators do that we only look at our own stuff and you've got to really look outside of that. So I love reading books about business management. Uh, Tom Peters is a, a favorite of mine. I read a really cool book by Harvey McKay called uh, How to Swim with Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive. And it's about how to you know, do sales, but sales from the point of view of paradigm shifting things so that um, the guy that wrote the How to Swim with Sharks book, he was a envelope salesman. Michael, can you think of something that's less exciting to talk people into spending a million dollars on than envelopes? But yet he shares ways to get inside of people's heads. And I've adapted those to working with kids, right? So like, it's just too easy to roll in on class and say, I have the bully pulpit and you're going to do what I say. Kids have hundreds and hundreds of defense mechanisms for that. So my goal is to try to help them to understand this is not going to be hard. It is going to be fun. And here's how you can use it to make your life better. Notice that I didn't say to make your career better or to get into a college. Very purposeful about the the messaging on that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting how you talked about applying these sales idea to your students. And it really other values such as communication skills or verbal and visual skills are undervalued in school today. So can you weigh in on why these skills are more important than ever in the world of work? Yeah, yeah. uh, That's a great question too. And I think, you know, that there was a time in 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 even in my life maybe in the in the 70s and and it started to kind of peter out in the 80s but there was a time when you could literally get good grades uh go to a good school and then literally just line up for jobs like you could literally just say hey i want to work there and there were people that said hey you could work here and then you might work at that place for 30 years right you might you might work there for your whole career first of all that's over um it's it's even hard to find a teacher now who's going to work in either one grade or one school district for their whole career. It just doesn't happen. And so now we're in an environment where people are going to work in four, five, six different kinds of jobs and different kinds of careers um, over their uh, over their employment history. And so I really feel like that there's an entrepreneurial layer that's added that was never there before. In the old days, you could just be really good at your job. And be known for being really good at your job. Well, things happen now. Factories close, people merge, um, products die. And so if you don't have a sense of your personal brand, like if I'll put this in the simplest terms, if people Google you and nothing comes up, that's really ugly nowadays. <laughs> oh, that's really bad. So that if if I'm going to interview you, Ariel, I want to Google you and I want to see videos you might have made. I want to see slide decks. I want to see blog posts. I want to see uh, that you maybe spoke in an event. And then I'm like, yeah, this is our guy. Whereas opposed to I Google you and there's nothing. I'm like, oh, yeah. So basically he's got this resume that maybe his mom wrote it, right? And he's got letters of recommendation. Well, they're from his friends. So of course they say they like him. But what's what's the bigger world say about this person's work? I think that that's a great segue to the next conversation on collaboration and cooperation. We 
you know, we talk about this entrepreneurial way of thinking. You shared a lot of, you know, really great ways in which, you know, the world is shifting. And it used to be that, you know, you, you had a skill and like you did your job, right? And yeah. you have these different companies throughout history where they really took a different approach to we each have unique skills. And when we start to synthesize our skills together, start to mash up, so to speak, what you can what you can do and give and what I and 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 what I have you know really incredible things happen. So what I see in school is everything is very isolationist based. You know, you study, you take a test, you write an essay, and if it is group based work, it's cooperation. So yeah. could you it's share some collaboration? Insight? Yeah. <laughs> in, collaboration. In what's that look like in the real world? Right. So there's a difference. There's a huge difference in cooperation and collaboration. And, and, and in, in cooperation uh, and REL, this would be the easiest terms, right? Like, so, hey, math assignment 43, we're, we're collaborating. So you do the evens and I do the odds. No, nah, that's not really collaborating. That's just outsourcing. That's just lowering the workload. Um, collaborating to me really is involves you know people trusting each other and taking risks and appearing on time and i think everybody that's ever been in school has been in a group with the guy or the gal who either does too much work not enough work never helps at all and learning how to manage that because here's the reality um, kids play a lot of games in school in terms of i'm going to help or i'm not going to help the reality of it is when you graduate, one of the number one most likely ways for people to not retain their job is to be a bad collaborator. And that can take on tons of things. Uh, that could be that I'm always late. It could be that I'm always whiny. Nobody wants to work with Debbie Downer. And so those things that we've sort of been hidden from by school because the teacher is able to kind of whip everybody into shape. And, you know, I'm just going to do the classic wah-wah kind of scenario, right? A group of five people were going to do a report on ancient Rome. And Mikey was supposed to grab all the pictures. But frankly, he just... He just grabbed them straight off the first five hits of Google Images, and they're kind of jaggy and janky. And so the teacher grades you down, and everybody moves on, and they're kind of not so excited with Mikey. The problem with that in real life is there's no, quote, teacher involved. And now, now the team is looking at you going, oh, dude, I can't believe you pulled that on us, and we are not going to play this game with you next time. So what happens is your work team, uh, your actual work team, start saying, I don't want to work with you. And that gets messy really fast. Yeah, definitely. Like personally, I struggle with group projects sometimes because it's hard to let other people take control of part of the project and you don't have any control over it and you don't know how it's going to turn out. So that's kind of a struggle for me. But segueing on to the next question, with the advances of technology, how do you see your company and the work you do evolving over the next three to five years? Who, you know, the, the people part, I don't see evolving that much. Uh, we use, you, you'll hear of tools called like Slack. Uh, we use a tool called uh, Monday. If you look up monday.com. And so for me as a supervisor, it allows me to um, see what everybody's doing in terms of who's, who's responsible for each task. Um, and way that goes. I don't think I see a lot of change on the interpersonal piece. I Technically, I think there's some things that are going to allow uh, managers to provide dashboards. And imagine, you know, going into a meeting with your supervisor and the supervisor says, dude, 
you know, 70% of your projects are late or uh, 70% of your projects are requiring ex- extra help from folks. There's a pattern that's really emerging. One of the things I'd read a few years ago about Cisco, the the networking giant, and I hope I have this right because uh, it was, gosh, maybe five years ago that I read this, but they don't have a classic boss in the, in the sense of what you imagine when I say boss. Um, Basically, each person is seen as a resource. And so imagine that, uh, Michael, I'm going to need uh, four hours of Illustrator from you this week uh, for Project 335. And I'm going to need six hours of um, Adobe uh, InDesign for a web page for you for this Project 336. And then I'm going to need you to do some drawings and that for project 337 and then i've got a meeting because we're doing a proposal for a client so in those different groups michael may be in very different work groups in every one so it's not like that there's an art department and then a tech department it's like everybody has different skills and those are those teams come together to solve problems and then they break up. So it's not like you just go and work on one thing all week anymore. You might be working on six or seven different projects, and each one of those might have a different project lead, and you might be a lead on two of them. So I think that that might give you a little bit of a vision of what's coming. I think that's going to be more and more common is that we're going to get rid of the middle manager and folks are going to manage each other and be accountable to each other, which circles right back to why is it critical that kids get collaboration skills in school. And the way we do it right now in school a lot of times is um, false or artificially imposed by that teacher person. The kids have to be accountable to each other. Really great insights into the collaboration piece. You know, for for me, I always see technology as this this resource that links people or this tool that helps others connect and, and do something that always has to lead towards engaging w- with others, right? That's where where innovation in the technology space thrives. So it's good to, you know, to have our audience hear from you, have the Technology and how people interact are are not separate things, and they're they're becoming even. It's even more apparent that they're not separate as as technology advances. Um, the next question, uh, it's you know, it's an if you could, but I also wonder, would you? If you could go back to high school, what would you do differently? I gotta think on that one. Um, I think the biggest change I might make is that uh, I would be more focused on my elective classes and expanding more elective skills. Uh, I think I did a pretty good job on that, but I, I mostly kept my, most of my electives were used up by art. Uh, I wish I would have gone farther in some of my shop classes. And I think that's one of the major places where we're really, really underserving kids right now is in this hands-on skills. Uh, I probably would have taken home ec. I would have learned how to cook a lot sooner than I did now. Um, But you got to remember that in a world where people are going to be working on multiple skills at once, to be able to understand how things work in terms of parallel circuits or series circuits or understand how a pump works or understand how to wire basic switches and use tools, those are critical skills uh, for people. And it's really a big force multiplier um, to be a valuable commodity in the workforce is to be able to say, yeah, I, I can do all of these thinking skills and I can build things. There's, that's a major, major um, force multiplier for people. Yeah, I think that's really important for high schoolers to hear. And also, 
high schoolers, as one myself, I know that we're terrified of failure. And it's like it's like a game over. So what does failure look like to you? Oh, well, okay. Um, first thing I'm going to tell you, I, I'm going to ask you a question. So what would fail, What are you talking about by failure? Are you talking about like a B in a class or like an F in a class? And I'm talking about on, this, on the final grade. Well, everybody has their own standards of failure. So personally for me, if I get a B in a class, then I would consider that failure for myself. But there could be another high schooler who looks at failure as an F or even right. not passing okay. the class so, in general. So the first thing I would tell you is that uh, let's work backwards. Do you have to go to a certain college or level of college to be a success? Correct answer is Come on, Dwight. Um, False. No. Yeah. So, A, you don't have to go to a perfect or a ideal high school. I can guarantee you that the lots of people from colleges you've never heard of are currently winning. So one of the things I would tell young people is if you've done everything you can and you get a B in a class, that is not a failure. That is just simply an outcome. And if you want to go to a college that needs you to have a 4.3, and that B gives you a 4.1, and you can't go to that college, I'm just not sure that's a realistic thing to be afraid of. I'm really not. Um, and this is coming from a guy who graduated college with a 2.9, who graduated high school with a 2.9. I've had literally no experiences where I've said, oh, you know what, if I'd have been a 4.0, I could have got that job. Or if I'd have gone to Stanford, I could have got that job. Most of the jobs that entail that kind of work are not interesting to me, so they're you know they're not relevant. But I'll tell you what blew some kids' minds when I was working at the high school level, which was you realize that as a 3.8 or a 3.9, you can probably still go to any college you want. The biggest determining factor for getting into those colleges is usually not your GPA. It's your portfolio. That's the tiebreaker. I don't think colleges – that in most cases, and I'm going with the cliche here, right? Not all the time. There are certain universities. For example, if you want to be in politics and you want to work at the DC level and you think you might like to be a senator, you gosh darn well better go to Stanford or Georgetown or something like that. I get that game. What I'm saying is if you're just saying, I'd like to do something cool with my life and I'm not sure what right now, I wouldn't freak out over that stuff. If, you, if you're saying, I'd like to be a healthcare professional, dude, there's people that go into the National Guard and let them pay for that doctor and or dental training for free. So, you know, if you're honest about what your career outcome is, a lot of that pressure disappears. Now, if you're saying, I want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think you need to go to college at all. Um, he didn't, or he went very little. So there's a huge spectrum there. But I think the first thing people have to do is say, what industry do I want to work in at what level? And like I said, there's clearly a game there. Uh, if you want to be a world-leading venture capitalist, you can look at what um, Elon Musk has done, whether you like him or not. He did not get there by going the conventional route. Steve Jobs went to some college. Bill Gates went to some college. I don't know that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between going to a big-time college and making your career come true. In fact, I'm going to Google something right now. Um, 4.0 student failure. There's a pretty cool article out there that lists the average uh, GPA of a millionaire. And the average GPA of a millionaire, I believe, is 2.9.
So that that's you. You're a two point nine. Is that yeah, a, I'm not a millionaire, so let's be clear with that. <laughs> um, here it is. Here's the article I'm looking for that you guys might want to reference if you have show notes. Why valedictorians rarely become rich and famous. The average GPA of a millionaire is two point nine, and you can agree or disagree with the article and or the way they did the research. But it is, if I was a senior in high school, I'd read this article to myself because I think what you're getting at, Ariel, is how, how much stress do I want? Do I really want to be 17 and be up at two in the morning worrying about my GPA? Is that really a factor? Or should I more be worried about what is my, what, what am I doing for humanity and what's my long-term goal? Because I'm a pretty big fan of uh, George Lucas's saying, which is follow your bliss, right? If you enjoy what you're doing, things tend to work out. Michael, can I get an amen from that one? Yeah, I'll give you an amen. That's uh, that's truth. Right and I'm there. gonna—I'll give you the inverse of it, Ariel, because I've been in it on the non-education side. You can't pay me enough money if I hate my job. Money becomes not a factor really quickly. I was really afraid that by getting into teaching, I was like, "Oh, I won't be making any money." Well, what I found in teaching was that money became not a factor. Um, I didn't care about money. My my secretary at my school would literally have to track me down to give me my paycheck. I so much didn't care about money. Uh, versus on the other side, when I was working in business, it just seemed like we were always chasing dollars and it was very much an empty pit to me in that, yeah, I got the dollars, but life sucks every day and I can't wait to be off. When I'm out doing teaching stuff, I can do that 14 hours a day and not even care. So now what's the dollar value worth, right? It's it's all relative to that bigger picture. I, yeah, I could definitely relate. You know, a lot of the times my work is is influenced by this connection between the world of design and marketing yeah. and who I am as an educator and you know even just uh having a conversation today on a podcast they're interviewing me around my book about you know what what is the how do I draw connections between different professions and different industries and how do I how do I you know synthesize those together you, you spoke a little bit about it early on in the conversation but just to kind of you know circle back to that conversation around you know Steve Jobs said that innovation thrives in a space that has diversity of ideas and experiences and I'm paraphrasing but it was something along those lines of his team was always built around each member having something unique to contribute. Right. And so when you're trying to succeed yourself, like where, where are you drawing inspiration and, and, and uh, ideas from? Yep. Yep. And I, I would say, you know, you're, you got to understand the underpinnings of school, a video that's making the rounds right now that I'm kind of in love with is, um, the end of recess. If you'll just look that up on YouTube, you can check it out, but it really talks about the idea that school right now is built to create a sense of sameness and that is going to get us nowhere in education. And I think, uh, Michael Cohen, you are a great example of that by just by your Twitter handle, the tech rabbi. I mean, the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, this guy's rad. I can tell right now just from his Twitter avatar and his handle, because if you're willing to say I'm the tech rabbi, you are a guy that sounds good to me because I like, um, 
traditional wholesome living and to put that with a dude that also loves some tech, that's a person I'd love to go hang out with. And so what a simple, elegant sense of branding you have, because you could have easily said the technology agnostic rabbi, (laughs) or you could have said, you know, the rabbi who teaches. And I'd have been like, yeah, well, big deal. We got a lot of those. But by just creating in your fun avatar, um, it says a lot. And I think there's, there's a really good lesson there for folks, because if I was going to hire people, I would say, I think this guy's on the same bias as I am. And I think, I think that's a big deal in the future marketplace because people are going to be switching jobs and careers over and over and being able to bring a sense of, I got this with you is a big deal. Yeah. I think high schoolers should really learn how to get that sense of I got this with anything they approach. And now we're going to head to our final question, by far one of our favorite questions. So it is our last question is beyond the test. What is the one skill or area of knowledge that high school students need to have to be successful? Oh, you know what? That's great because you transitioned before I shared my last thought. And this is my last thought. I think the easiest, best thing that high school kids should be able to do, which ironically they kind of do with Instagram and they kind of do a Snapchat, is they need to be really, really good at presenting. And um, I think uh, I think that we can really assist that in in the um, in the classroom, uh, there's a lesson plan that Michael knows of called Iron Chef, where basically it solves all these problems in one move. It's really cool. Like, I give kids 10 minutes and I give them a web page or any kind of resource. It can even be on paper. In 10 minutes, each kid needs to make one slide with each slide is kind of think of it as a scavenger hunt. You know, like you need to find two or three pictures or three or four facts or three or four keywords. Um, uh, and, and, and in 10 minutes, each kid builds a slide in a group of five. So that's really more like collaboration, but it's setting the standard for, um, uh, sorry, it's more like cooperation, but it's setting the standard for collaboration because each kid is in, is individually responsible for one slide as a group. And so that way, if one kid messes up, the whole group can just kind of look at them and they get their own score because it doesn't break the whole thing. Um, but I think it, it, it really provides that model. Now in, in my classroom alone, kids might do one of those every Wednesday. I want you to visualize going from nothing to making a slide and presenting within 10 minutes, um, and doing that over 30 reps, right? It saves, uh, a lot of time for the teacher in terms of preparation because the the project's about the same every day uh, every week but the kids are working at a fast tempo explaining something they may have never seen before those are a lot of the same skills you're going to need in an interview and so imagine Ariel if you were if you were doing something along those lines in three or four classes um, once a week dude you're doing like 120 presentations a year it's almost like getting good at karaoke Right. If you've ever watched karaoke, somebody that's new at it's very tentative and nervous. And if anything messes up, they don't know what to do. Right. Somebody who's a karaoke pro, if the song messes up, dude, they just they just start yodeling and they just go with it and and they actually take it up a notch. And so the crowd's like, oh, you're good. And that's that's the uh, thing um, that I'd like for kids to have when they leave high school is the ability to learn about a subject very quickly 
get the high points, the key details, be able to represent it and share it in a creative way. I think that's an easy thing that we can bake into school. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure the uh, viewers really appreciate your insights. And if you want to just give the viewers just where they could find you on social media. Oh, the viewers can see me all over the social media. Uh, if you just Google J-O-N space C-O-R-I-P-P-O, uh, just Google it and I'm all over the place or at J Carippo on Twitter. And uh, one of the things I like to share is free lifetime tech support. So if, uh, if this makes any of your uh, listeners or viewers say, I wish he would tell me more about that, they can definitely send me an email. I love engaging folks on stuff like this. Well, John, thank you so much. You're very welcome. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. If you could rate and subscribe in iTunes, that would be amazing. For sneak peeks and to recommend the guest, follow us on Instagram at Beyond the Test Podcast. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening and thinking Beyond the Test.